0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in partnership with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. It was common during the years of the U.S. invasion of Iraq to talk about the Sunni-Shia split and how the sectarian violence was the result of a centuries-long hatred between these two religious schools. But seeing this divide as the result of a long-standing feud, or to see it in the model of other religious schisms like the Catholic-Protestant split and the centuries of war that followed, would be a mistake, argues Toby Matheson. Toby, in his most recent book, *The Caliph and the Imam: The Making of Sunnism and Shiism* from Oxford University Press, tries to chart the history of the Sunni-Shia split, its origins at the very start of Islam's founding, and how different Muslim polities, including those outside of the Arabian core, flitted between tolerance and conflict. Toby Matheson. Matheson is senior lecturer in global religious studies at the University of Bristol. He is the author of several award-winning books and has previously held fellowships at the Universities of Oxford, Cafoskri of Venice, Stanford, Cambridge, and the London School of Economics. Today, Toby and I talk about the origins of this division between the Sunni and the Shia and how different regimes throughout history molded and were molded by this split and what that means for the present day. So, Toby, thank you so much for coming on the show today to talk about your your comprehensive history of the split between um, Sunnism and and Shiism. Uh, but perhaps I, I want to start by actually talking about uh, or asking about what this split really represents. So, you know, what are the religious differences? I know there's historical and political differences that, that we'll get into later, but are there any and what are the religious differences in terms of like doctrines or articles of faith between um, the Shia and and the Sunni faiths?
1: Yeah, I mean, there are religious differences, um, but they do relate to the historic and, and political disagreements. So we can't really disentangle one from the other. Um, because um, so after the death of the Prophet Muhammad, it, it wasn't entirely clear to to all of his followers who should succeed him. And there was major disagreements and by and large, um, you know, Sunnis uh, agreed that a number of his companions should become his successors, his caliphs, um, and uh, and and another group argued that no, some of his offspring, um, uh, uh, you know, related family should should lead the community. Um, and those would eventually become, you know, the Shia. They saw that Ali was their first Imam. Um, and, uh, you know, while of course the sort of the historical, you know, details are are sometimes, you know, can be a bit confusing. Basically, um, they are very significant also for the religious uh, and doctrinal aspect because, um, uh, for example, uh, Shia argue that all the Im- Imams are infallible. So whatever they did um, is almost like law. Where Sunnis argue, no, a different set of of people, the the first generation of Muslims, and also to a certain extent the first caliphs, um, uh, you know, have to be emulated, and um, often actually they, you know, they did different things, and and therefore, you know, the sort of two step separate um, and different sets of of traditions to be followed. Um, established, you know, fairly early on and, and, and led to sort of different, uh, you know, yeah, I guess di- different doctrinal developments as well. And I guess that's why the book is called The Caliph uh, and the Imam, um, you know, from the outset.
0: So, I mean, let's get into this kind of then, this kind of foundational split then, um, you know, who was going to be the, the proper successor to um to, to the Prophet Muhammad. I mean, so so, what's the history, as best we know, um, about this kind of division between between the two between these two camps?
1: So I just sort of started uh, outlining this a little bit. I mean, I think one of the things to always be uh, very aware is that actually the terms Sunni and Shi' you know didn't really exist uh, or, or were not applied necessarily at the start um, as denominators for these. Uh, groups and there were also some other movements that eventually died out that had uh, different views. So you know, it's it's important not to hit, read history um, backwards and sort of say, that, well, there was a you know an unchanging Sunni and Xi community from the start that somehow you know is, is, represent, is represented today. Um, there were always sort of you know fluctuations and conversions and and people could join you know this or that um, group, but but ultimately that sort of you know early historical disagreement uh, as I said um led to you know the different legal schools the Sunni and the Shia ones having sort of different ways of of coming for example to legal rulings or also coming to rulings about um, you know how to behave, and, uh, and you know, and about how to practice your faith. Um, of course, you know many key core um, things are the same. So Sunnis and Shia accept the same Quran, for example. That's a very important um, thing. But on the second source of Islamic law, on the Hadith, so the so the tradition, in a sense, of the you know of the of the Prophet um and his companions um there is there's is major disagreement and and that then leads to you know different imp- interpreter interpretations of these two sources so in shiism you have a much stronger sort of position of um yeah of the imams and then eventually of the shi clergy um whereas in sunnism you had a you know a stronger sort of um, development of 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 legal schools that then you know once they had sort of devised specific rulings um, people applied you know relatively unchanged uh, over the centuries so um
0: yeah so then how does how does this kind of this split play out um in the early centuries of um of of islam um you know i think you, i think you write in your book is like there's there's actually a lot of um tolerance happening there's a lot of kind of these these this this division isn't really quite as stark as it Seems today, you know, to kind of uh, to kind of talk to use your point about not reading history backwards. Um, But then but then how does this kind of division between between the two camps kind of really kind of play out in in these early centuries?
1: I mean, I think one of the things that struck me also in, in writing the book is that actually, you know, you do have in the different periods already, um, you know, uh, very strongly political projects that um, that seek to employ, you know, one side or the other or a specific sub-school um, to basically legitimize political rule, to, to give the rulers a specific sort of almost... Um, you know divinely ordained status um and also differentiate these rulers from competitors domestically or or neighbors and then sometimes also legitimize war um against them because in principle muslims shouldn't go to war with another muslim power so um you know Austria, you know claiming you actually are the correct muslim power uh, always legitimized um, that. And um, I think, yeah, so you know, the major argument, I think, of the book is, is sort of the political nature of, uh, you know, of, of this disagreement, and but then also the ways in which it was instrumentalized um, throughout history. I mean, I think one of the ways in which the earlier periods are different from later ones, especially sort of, you know, also from the early modern period onward, is that you know, you, you, you had, let's say in the 9th, 10th, 11th century, 12th century, um, uh, uh, you had um, already sort of, you know, Muslim dynasties, yeah, you know, espousing one, uh, you know, let's say, uh, uh, Ismaili Shi'ism and then, you know, going against the other groups or or a, or a Sunni sort of um, uh, very much very, very Sunni-centric um, identity and, and denouncing Shi'ism. But it never really um, applied to all the population under, under the rule of, of this particular um, dynasty. So um, to a large extent, you know, people could go about their daily lives and their religious lives uh, unmolested, um, even when you know, at a at sort of big power level, um, there was already a sort of sectarianized rivalry going on. So, for example, the the Fatimids um, of of Egypt, there were an Ismaili Shi power that that very strongly sort of, you know, uh, tried to spread uh, Ismaili Shiism also in, in, you know, very far away, all the way to India. Um, but, you know, most of the population under their control basically didn't convert to, to their particular interpretation of Islam. And when they were overthrown, the, you know, their, their legacy, sort of their religious legacy, slowly disappeared. And and so I think in that sense, sort of the earlier period differs from, from what we have sort of from the early modern period onwards. And, uh, yeah, I mean, especially sort of in more recent history.
0: So I want to ask about... Um about about the Safavids um, who I think end up establishing kind of one of the I think arguably one, one of the earliest and I guess few uh, Shia powers in in the Middle East. Um, I wonder if you might kind of talk a bit more about the Safavids in Iran and maybe kind of the the version of of Shiism that they followed.
1: Yeah, so exactly. The Safavids would be an example of a of a new power that that actually did things quite differently. I mean, they started out as a Sufi movement and actually sort of straddled the lines between, you know, normative Sunnism and Shiism. Um and then, you know, but 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 sort of in the fifteenth century started to espouse, you know, a, a sort of pretty radical form of, of Twelver Shiism, um uh, and, and and use that to mobilize people and, and to eventually take over um uh Iran and and that was actually a very personalized sort of Sufi form of of Shiism in which the Safavid ruling family were sort of the spiritual leaders um as well but you know once they had conquered Iran they brought in clerics um that were more formally trained in a more scriptural uh, Twelve Shiism from from uh, you know Arab countries where 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 Shiism had sort of remained uh, you know continued to exist and and they staffed sort of the legal institutions you know part of the state bureaucracy and they uh, were instrumental in basically a top down conversion uh, of Iran so over the next two centuries you basically have a conversion um, of of Iranians from uh, you know Sunni Islam or or you know Zoroastrianism or or, or you know other. Um, uh, uh you know or, or or a sort of more you know not so specifically aligned religiosity uh to to shiism so um uh you know what we know today of iran as sort of the heartland of shi power is is due to the Zephavids uh, really and and in their case um it was quite different they started to um, you know expel populations that didn't want to convert they had um sort of you know enforces in the streets so Shia prayer times differ a bit from Sunni ones so they you know you had to go and pray at at the at the, you know Shia hours um the call to prayer um you know was was specifically referring to to Ali um and, and that was instituted and um you know while while some sunnis survived um and they you know, there are still sunnis today in iran most uh, had to convert um or or leave the country and this was a, you know this was a rupture and but it you know it weren't only the Safavids. it was at this time that also other powers started to act uh, you know more like this in the sense that you know they adopted a more specifically um, you know, confessional or, or sectarian, uh, you know, interpretation of Islam, and then try to apply that more strongly,
0: um, you know, to 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 their populations under their control. Another region you talk about, um, which I think, which I think often gets kind of left behind, I think, when talking about um, the history of Islam, is uh, India and kind of Mughal India. Uh, how do these discussions about about Sunnism and Shiism play out? Uh, in South Asia.
1: Yeah, precisely. So India is actually another uh, big topic of the book, and um, uh, has has really added, I think, a lot to to my own understanding of of Islamic history and and to debates that are sometimes more Middle East centric. Um, so you know, when the Safavids come to power, you actually have direct reactions in India. So in the Deccan, uh, uh, there are the Deccan sultanates, um, and one of the rulers there actually, um, you know, uh, sees the Safavids as an example and also converts to 12 Shiism and tries to do sort of the same, try to do a sort of... a. Top-down sort of, you know, propagation um, of Shiism. Then his neighbors are, are very upset, you know, also for dynastic reasons, but uh, ostracize him as being a Shi and, and 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 ally and uh, you know with other sort of local uh, Sunni rulers. And um, so so you know that is, a, for example, a very direct um, uh, consequence. Um, in 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 other forms, you know, the sort of Iran as the center, in a sense, of the Persianate world, um, Persian becoming sort of the main lingua franca of um, Central Asia and and, uh, uh, South Asia, I mean, the the Muslim uh, part of South South Asia at the time. So the Safavid takeover um, exerts incredible influence also in in sort of Persianate circles in Afghanistan and in, in northern India and uh you have there also s you know quite strong conversions um to shiism and um uh while the the, the Mughal uh, uh dynasty and and sort of the main ruling dynasties remain uh, remain sunni um you have a, you know quite a strong influence of of shiism and um the the Mughal reign is often seen as a more sort of ecumenical polity obviously you know, um, the, the Muslims remained uh, a minority in, in, in almost all places and therefore, you know, always had to accept religious difference. Um, there was no other way um, around it. But, you know, the, the ways in which they linked themselves to Iran, um, you know, especially the Shia linked themselves to Iran and, um, you know, uh, Sunni uh, Sunnis in, in, in Mughal, uh, um, Service, for example, those that had come from Afghanistan, for example, linked themselves more to sort of Afghan rulers that that were actually fighting the Safavids and 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 had a very strong sort of Sunni identity. Um, it's in these ways that uh, that India also became very much connected to these sort of more you know sectarianized rivalries that were playing out uh, you know in the Middle East and and, and Central Asia. Um, yes,
0: I want to ask a. Uh, uh... I want, I want to ask kind of another big picture question before kind of, again, go returning to the history. Um, you know, I think when a lot of lay people think about, um, think about religious schisms, um, and religious divides, uh, I think the model that comes to mind is probably, you know, Catholicism versus Protestantism, Protestantism, which led to centuries of war, (laughs) um, and, and I mean, obviously most religious schisms aren't like that, but I think that's kind of the model a lot of people have in their heads, um, is that, you know, these differences of doctrine lead to, lead to a lot of violent conflict. Um, but what's a better way of understanding, um, I guess what's a better way of understanding kind of these conflicts or debates or coexistences, um, with the with 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 um, the Sunni and and the Shia populations.
1: Yeah you're right at pointing this out and you know myself I've been asked this countless of times at talks or or or, or you know conversations uh, and so on and so forth and um, I actually discussed this a little bit in the book as well because sort of the you know in in sociology of of religion it's very much informed by studying the the catholic protestant split and the very language that 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 people use um, and then also started to use for for other uh, religions uh, comes from this. So so the notion of church versus sect, right? So so the very term sect um, uh, and and sectarianism, which is sometimes used to describe uh, these issues, comes from the Christian context, but doesn't make sense in in Islam. And and I think that's you know one of the things I discussed at the start of the book, and then then also. Um, later on I really try actually to to avoid the term uh sect because um you know in the in the Muslim case it doesn't make sense um as i as we just discussed you know um the the the, the split happened right after the death of the prophet and and you know for thousand four hundred years you know uh, the two sides sort of developed. Um, you know their own sets of practices, legal schools, uh, religious traditions, but also you know uh, sets of books and 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 um, you know ways of, of of I mean a clergy and and so it's it's really different from you know uh, yeah I mean the Protestant sort of movement uh, against the Catholic Church you know much later in the religion's um, history. Uh, sometimes, you know, it has been argued that, uh, or one could make the case that, you know, the, the only thing that is sort of comparable in Christianity would be the split between the Orthodox churches and the Catholic Church, for example, or, you know, the relationship between the Catholic Church and all the Middle Eastern, um, uh, you know, the churches, basically. Um, but, um, you know, uh, that also doesn't encompass really, you know, uh, in a sense, um I mean that 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 would be similar in the longevity of, of the relationship but um, you know you you did have uh, in Christianity then a sort of you know an integration almost of some of these churches into the catholic church or at least a rapprochement um, and and you never really had that with uh, between sunnism and Shiism. I mean I discussed some of it in the in the book but but um, uh, yeah, but so what is what is really crucial here is that so in the 18th, 19th century, when European empires start to conquer much of the Islamic world, especially India that we just talked about. And then, you know, there were big Sunni and Shi populations and, uh, you know, the East India Company started to implement a legal system and so on and so forth and started to draw up, you know, well, what are the you know what are the the the, the Muslim law that we should apply here? Um, and started to draw up Sunni and Shi' legal uh, texts and 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 try to you know started to translate it and so on and so forth. Um, you know the early Orientalists, Orientalism being that sort of you know academic discipline, so-called academic discipline dealing with everything in the Orient um uh they you know they started to translate sort of the, the first sort of you know religious texts um and also Muslim histories of islam they could find and most of the uh, things they they translated and engaged with early on came through the ottoman empire or or from india and um many were actually sort of sunni works um and that were very polemical against the shia so you had quite, um, you know, early on you had then the notion that well the Shia are the sect in a sense of of, of Islam, and um, for for quite a long time this actually perpetuated a sort of a very biased view of uh, of Shiism in Islamic studies, um, or you know also in in more popular perceptions of of Islam and and histories of Islam in in the West really. And one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is also um, to counter that and and take, you know, the different branches of Islam sort of at face value. How would they describe themselves? How do they, uh, you know, how do they see themselves? Um, and there you see that um, obviously uh, Shia don't see themselves as a sect. They they see themselves, yes, they're the minority branch of Islam, but they see themselves very much at the at the heart of, of Islam. And um, I think uh, there, yeah, there were some mistakes made in the past, and uh, we really need to be very careful, basically, when we try to sort of you know invoke something like the Catholic Protestant um, split. Having said that, um, however, in the 16th century, you know, uh, as we have just been discussing, we see sort of similar processes happening in the Islamic world that are happening in Europe. But I think they're more to do with sort of broader world historical patterns rather than sort of you know doctrinal specific, um, yeah, or you know the the spillover of the Catholic Protestant split. Um so you know, for example the, the the Ottomans, you know, start to have this big rivalry with the Safavids, and that um uh, legitimize themselves more as a sort of a Sunni Muslim power. But this comes in context with their rivalry with the Habsburgs, um, uh, you, get, you know, where they actually also are sort of forced to become a sort of a more Muslim power against the sort of Christian uh, uh, legitimized Habsburg power. So there are these sort of connections between Europe and the Middle East and, the, and Central Asia here, um, but we need to also be beware of, of not overstating sort of the similarities.
0: Well, that's, I mean, that's an interesting segue to kind of my, my, my next question, um, which is kind of as, as we start moving into, um, uh, kind of, kind of the latter half of the, of the second millennium, um, where you start to see, you know, uh, Sunnism and Shiism getting wrapped up in concepts of national identity or proto-national identity, um, I will ask how European empires get involved. Maybe let's stick with the identity question first. Uh, I mean, how 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 does kind of these proto-national and national identities then start getting wrapped up in discussions of um, Sunnism and, and Shiism as well?
1: Well, because... In in let's say most countries nowadays in that have a sort of a Muslim uh, majority, you know, a, a certain interpretation of Islam, like anywhere in the world, uh, you know, you will have a sort of a majority religious group um, and their symbols, their narratives will have been interwoven with nationalism in in one way or another um uh, even if that is done you know more explicitly in certain cases and even if there was a you know very strong secularizing nationalism at some point or another but sort of you know historic narratives you know epic battles or you know foundational figures they will inevitably be bound up with a sort of a, a state, uh, you know, state religion, um, in a sense, and and you know, pref- yeah, preferential treatment for one religion over or one interpretation of religion over the other. It's something that that is happening, you know, all over the world, in a sense, and and the Islamic world is is no different, but it hasn't really been studied in in so much depth. So um, there's one chapter that looks at this. Uh, more specifically, so um, you know, obviously, you know, Shiism becomes Iran's uh, national religion. There, there is no, there is no way uh, around that. And yet, there was, there was a sort of very, you know, secularizing nationalist interlude in a sense with the Pahlavi um, dynasty. But, but even there, you know, uh, there was some support for 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 religion and, and Shi institutions continued. And, and nowadays, you know, in places like Turkey or Iran. Or, or Pakistan, which would sort of sees itself as the successor, or, or you know of, of the of the all of the Mughal and the sort of the you know Indian Muslim dynasties, you have that very strong connection between national identity and territory and a sort of uh, you know a, an an early modern Muslim empire that sort of you know gives meaning, but that also um, you know espoused particular um, yeah I mean a, a, a confessional. Um, identities and um, i think in, in 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 those places where actually you know um, where there were contestations in the past and and people may have perhaps converted from one to the other this is particularly sensitive so um, you know egypt right is is, is considered a you know a heartland of 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 sunnism in 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 many ways i mean it has a big christian population too but but sort of the history of of that sort of Shi uh, yeah of of, of of the Shi founding dynasty in a sense of of um, you know of, of Muslim Egypt um, means that you know when when there are instances of of conversions of of Egyptians to Shiism for example um and you know th- there is a lot of uh, outrage and, um, uh, and and this can be instrumentalized very much because it actually constitutes a sort of a, a separate you know political historical project that has some some resonance and um you, you do see that also in in places like uh, lebanon syria iraq or or the gulf states where uh sunnis and shias sometimes have a bit of a different um you know a different nationalist view or you know a different view of of what constitutes the ideal nation what constitutes the symbols um uh and, and and so on and so forth. Uh, the same with with the remaining Sunnis in Iran actually have a sort of a different set of of nationalism uh, uh from from the majority. Um and uh so I think you know this intertwinement in a sense of nationalism and and confessional identity uh in Islam is, is is a fascinating topic.
0: I do want to ask about kind of the the west's role in this um and how the west kind of interacts with with these with these two different uh religious schools i guess is the word i'm going to use (laughs) given that other words are potentially problematic um but how does the west kind of get involved in this whether through empire or um or maybe in the post empire stage um how does how does how how does the west kind of interfere in this
1: uh yeah i mean it's uh crucial um so the book has four parts uh now we talk mainly about sort of the first two parts uh and then part three is is almost you know entirely sort of about the uh, colonial um influence basically and how the colonial state reshaped religion and institutionalized, really, the, the, the division between, uh, you know, Sunnism and Shiism, uh, especially in India, but then also in other places. So uh, this was especially important for uh, the British and the French, um, you know, uh, imperial projects, because they ruled territories where where large, you know, Sunni and Shi populations uh, were in, in other parts of the Islamic world. Other divisions were were instrumentalized. But, but in, you know, in these places, it was... Um, uh, the sunni shi split and, and therefore i mainly focus on the french and the and the british um, experiences uh, it was crucial for example in in creating a legal category of, of sunni and shi that is different um, before so for example in the muslim in the ottoman empire uh, you know there was only ever muslim as a legal category there was never the the different you know different uh, re- muslim religious groups um you know they never they were never able to to come to court and say, "Well, I want you know my inheritance to be, uh, you know, regulated in a different way because I'm a Shia or I'm an uh, Alevi or or, or something." Um, this this only existed for all the you know all the Christian groups and and Jewish communities in the Ottoman Empire a sort of specific legal system and the Ottomans always resisted this very strongly um, to you know to open up Muslim the category Muslim to subdivisions but this was actually something that um, you know missionaries and 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 sort of European powers and Iran frankly uh, you know uh, a culture Iran uh, uh, pushed for but uh, in in india and then later on in in you know in the gulf and and in the mandate period the interwar period in iraq lebanon and syria the the colonial powers basically created these uh, different uh, legal categories for for muslims and institutionalized separate legal systems for them they even you know made censuses where you had to tick a box are you sunni or shia or ismaili or in the case of, of Syria and Lebanon, uh, are you Alawite, are you Druze, um, uh, and so on and so forth. So basically created these uh, categories, which, I mean, of course, some people subscribe to, but they were never put on paper that, like that. And and so there was a you know a reinforcing of these identities in uh, a relationship with uh, the modern state, with the modern colonial state. So in that sense, this was incredibly uh, important. And um, I guess, you know, if you... Um, refer to sort of the West, in a sense, as also, uh, uh, you know, the, the American interventions uh, in the Middle East. Yeah, I mean, then this was, uh, of course, incredibly uh, uh, influential. So the the American invasion of Iraq really, um, you know, sectarianized the whole region and allowed a lot of these... Um, uh, these sort of past histories that 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 I talked about and also talked in the book, but that had somehow you know waned in importance in many places because they had been subsumed by you know other other issues. Um, also you know uh, uh, you know the the, the uh, uh, it, 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 Israeli-Arab uh, conflict uh, obviously was was very high on on everyone's agenda, um, and and you know other other struggles, um, you know the Cold War, um, uh, you know many other things that were were much more important um, to people. But the invasion of Iraq really, you know, and and sort of you know at the heartland of the Sunni-Shi split and and sort of of the early you know empires and dynasties. Um, uh, and then, sort of the you know the the, the ascent of Iraqi Shia uh, really played on on the fears of of Sunnis everywhere in the Gulf, uh, in in Egypt uh, and the Levant, and um, really brought a lot of these sort of you know let's say more hidden conflicts now or hidden you know memories in a sense to the fore and and changed the, the face of the whole region.
0: Yeah, this is actually I think a, a good place to kind of. Um... For my final question, I kind of wrap things up. You know, in your introduction, uh, you kind of tut-tut a lot of the commentators who are writing around the time of the invasion of Iraq, but also, I guess, during the Arab Spring, um, that would often kind of refer to uh, tensions between, between, um, the Sunni and the Shia, sometimes violent tensions as the result of quote unquote ancient hatreds, um, which, uh, which, which, which I think is, is, as you note, quite a simplistic way of putting it. Um, but obviously as you, as you note in your last answer, um, a lot of this has been kind of brought back before with, um, with the rise of a, of a Shia led state in Iraq, but also kind of these, these tensions around the Gulf, um, In the present day, as we're kind of thinking about um, the Middle East and um, kind of intercommunity tensions, what's what, in your view, is the best way now to uh, really understand this um, this difference between between Shiism and Sunnism? Um, If it's not if ancient hatreds is wrong and it very likely is wrong, what's what's a better way of understanding this um, in the present day?
1: I mean, ancient hatred is wrong, as I point out, but on the other hand, you know, uh, it does have a long history, um, but uh, there were specific moments, um, often, you know, times of political crisis or, or interstate rivalry where, where it came to the fore. So, you know, it, you know, it didn't just emerge out of out of nowhere. Um, and there were very strong periods when, uh, when Muslims came together, um, you know, the pan-Islamic movement, um, and uh, you know, or for example, support for Palestine. I mean, uh, uh, you know, as we're speaking, uh, you know, these events are un- unfolding. Um, you know, one of the, the counter examples, in a sense, to having a Sunni alliance and a Shia alliance is uh, uh, Iran's, uh, you know, longstanding support for for Hamas, basically Sunni Islamist uh, organization, and and that Sunni Islamist organization accepting, uh, you know, uh, support from from the you know the world's foremost Shi islamist uh, power so um, you know the the fact that that actually you know islamism in some ways emerged also as a pan islamic project even if it then sort of descended in many places into you know in you know violence between uh, sunni and Shi um, islamists but i think we really um you know, need to take the political context into account, and um, you know, realize that states often drive this, um, uh, and clerics to a certain extent, um, because they profit in a sense from from having their position reinforced. But they are also the ones who can put a lid on 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 religious violence. And in the last few years, this is actually what we've seen. We've seen actually a decreasing of tensions. Um, you know, not least to a sort of a rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and the Gal- and and the other some other Gulf states and Iran, um, and and really changes inside Saudi Arabia because you know the the spreading of the Wahhabi school, which was maybe the most anti-Shi' um, you know school in in Sunnism, uh, all around the world, really had 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 you know a strong impact on on Sunni-Shi' relations all around the world. I mean, made it much worse in many cases. <laughs> And the suppression of the Wahhabi school in Saudi Arabia is, a you know, it's hard to overestimate the the importance of this. Um, We don't yet really know where this experiment is going, but definitely for the moment, you have much less sort of, you know, sectarian hate speech being promoted in Saudi Arabia or or by allied movements or organizations. And... um, you know both sides actually do try to refrain from provoking each other um you know on a religious level i mean there might still be conflicts or there are still com- you know civil wars and and some wars are still going on um where the two sides sort of back opposite forces um like in yemen but on the other hand you know we have much less now of this sort of hyper sectarianized um rhetoric that that we saw, for example, when with the rise of ISIS, ISIS really played on the notion of, uh, you know, Sunni solidarity and, uh, you know, against the West and against uh, the Shia uh, and, uh, you know, invoked, um, you know, messages from the Wahhabi school to basically legitimize mass killings of, of, of Shia. Um, and that resonated with some, but also uh, went too far, I think, especially for the Gulf uh, rulers and the Gulf states and then the systems, uh, because they also started attacking, right, Saudi Arabia uh, uh, as a state. So, um, I mean, we do have a, a betterment of the situation. Also, you know, key clerics have come together to sort of, you know, uh, issue statements and issue joint conferences to to say, well, you know, the, the violence has really become uh too much so so in a sense at the moment due to sort of political considerations we're we're seeing a, definitely a toning down of uh of these tensions but perhaps to go back to you know your you know you asked about the parallels with the you know uh, protestant catholic or or you know with with other um yeah you know with this conflict what we've never really had is um I mean, there were many Sunni-Shi dialogue initiatives like at, at high level, uh, you know, in for example, in the 50s, 60s and, and more recently. But we've never really had uh, full acceptance of Shiism, of for example, as a fifth school of law um, and, a, and a full sort of merging of the two sides, like, you know, a full acceptance of, let's say, the, the senior clergy. Of the of all the schools sort of coming together and saying, well, you know you have a different view on on all of these things, but basically you're also um, uh, a Muslim. And so I think un, un, until we have that, uh, sort of a real rapprochement also sort of on the religious level, um, uh, it will always be possible to to instrumentalize this again if if tensions uh, resurface.
0: Well, I think that's a great place to end our conversation with Toby Matheson, author of The Caliph and the Imam, The Making of Sunnism and Shi'ism. Toby, I actually have two final questions for you, which are, uh, first of all, where can people find your work? Um, Not just this book, but all of your work. And question two, um, what's next for you? What do you think the next project might be? Thanks.
1: Um, uh, well, I think this book can be found in, in quite a lot of places. Um, it was published by Oxford University Press and uh, I published two other books. One was a, is a sort of a shorter account, um, you know, written in a more vivid and immediate s- style about... Uh, the Arab Spring protests in the Gulf and how the Gulf states sort of reacted to it, um, and and another book on on Shiism in Saudi Arabia, which was my PhD, which maybe I don't recommend for, for everyone to read, um, but you know they can be found wherever books I think can be can be ordered uh, uh, or found and. Um, Now I'm uh, working more broadly sort of um, on the rise of the Gulf states, sort of on the modern history of the Gulf states, um, also on, you know, the changing nature of of religion um, uh, in the Gulf states, you know, how they have sponsored various forms of, of Islam. Um, but also how they became sort of the new centers um, of the world, um, and I'm probably going to write a book about this. Um, and I'm also interested, sort of, in the role of religion and the rise of political Islam during the Cold War um, period. So somewhat related to what we've been talking about, but um, you know, also sort of, yeah, new new topics, or or in a sense for me going a little bit back to to the Gulf states where I where I sort of started my career. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I look forward to to hearing more about him. You can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. that's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at BookReviewsAsia, that's reviews, plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the NewBooks Network and NewBooksNetwork.com. We're on all of your podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Arati Prasad, author of Silk, A History in Three Metamorphoses. But before then, Toby, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me, Nick. It was a
1: pleasure.